Father in heaven, thank you for this day and the blessings you give to us. Thank you for this opportunity that we have once again to gather and to think about your word. We pray that you would bless it to us, that you would lead us and guide us through our consideration of your word, that we might use it to our benefit and be blessed by it. So help us, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Well, one of the things that I wanted to do, we kind of came to the end of the, the canons adored on the second head of doctrine on limited atonement. Um, but if you'll notice, you know, when we began to speak about these things, uh, we made the comment that usually when you meet people, if they say, you know, I'm a, I'm a four-point Calvinist, or I, I agree with lots of Calvinism, but I'm a four-point Calvinist, this is usually the, the article that they don't like, um, the, the limited atonement. And they'll usually, you know, press you on the verses that seem to speak of a universal atonement um, or a universal application of the death of, of our Lord. And so what I wanted to do is think a little bit about um, some of those passages with you. Think about those passages that someone might bring up um, if they were to challenge the notion of a limited atonement and talk about what we as Reformed people make of those passages. Um, and so one of the things that um, has been said before is oftentimes what you end up doing, you know, if you've maybe had this experience where they say, well, you have your verses and I have mine. And so you pull all of your verses out of your quiver for your Calvinist side and they pull all their verses out of the quiver for their kind of Arminian side and then you just are sort of left, well, you have your verses, we have ours. Um, and of course the challenge is you need, to, you need to try to harmonize them some way. God doesn't speak out of both sides of his mouth. God doesn't have two opinions on the same matter. He means one thing, and, and to get a full understanding of what God means, you have to kind of work through his word and say, now how does this verse work with that verse? Um, and what I'm convinced of is something that um, a Reformed commentator made about this kind of our versus your verses sort of comparison um, and he, he's reformed, so he says this. It is only by a, pra a process of distortion, by their being made to suffer violence, that passages teaching limited atonement can be so explained away as to become even neutral in the controversy. It is remarkable, accordingly, that opponents of the Calvinistic view rarely, if ever, apply themselves to the task of showing what fair construction they may put, according to their theory, on the text usually cited against them. And I think that that's very insightful. Oftentimes they'll say, you know, if you bring up a passage that seems to speak very clearly of a limited atonement, they will turn around and say, well, what about this passage? And what you have to say is, well, wait a minute, let's look at this limited atonement passage and see how do you explain this in any other way but a limited atonement? Um, if Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many... Um, how, how can you explain that away in terms of the world, right? That seems to say specifically that there's a, lim there's a limited number of people in view there, the many as opposed to everyone or, you know, and there are different verses like that. And so I think this commentator is exactly right. There are certain verses that you cannot explain in a kind of universalistic sense without really doing violence to the verse, Whereas I think we're going to hopefully see as we go along, the verses that are often cited against limited atonement can be explained and can actually be explained rather easily um, if they're thought of in context and um, 
And so I thought, you know, this often happens to us. If you're trying to explain limited atonement to somebody, someone comes along and says, well, what about this verse? What about that verse? And so I thought it'd be good to just kind of take the bull by the horns, go right into those verses and talk about some of those that people might might go to. So um, really what I want to do is explain this in kind of two parts, and I don't know how far we're going to get in the time we have today. Um, But there are passages that talk about Christ dying for the world, or seem to indicate that Christ died for the world. Um, And I think we have to explain, you know, those passages in terms of what is meant by those passages that talk about the world. And then there are some that will say that Christ died for all, or for all men, and deal with those. So I think these these passages kind of fit under those two general general headings. Um, Things that are said about the world, Christ dying for the world, or Christ dying for all men, or for all, Um, And how do we understand those given what we've already said about the limited atonement or the definite atonement that Christ died for a particular people, um, not for everyone sort of indiscriminately? Um, One of the first places I think we could could go is uh, John 1.29. John 1.29, that's a famous statement of John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, Lamb of God, pretty easy to understand, right? The image that John is thinking of there, the Day of Atonement, right? Well, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, So does that mean we're talking about a universal atonement or something? Well, John likes to use the world as as something that comes up again and again in John's writings. He'll talk about the world. Um, What what does he mean by that? Oh, he he talks that same way in John 3.16. God so loved the world, right? Again, you always seem like you suspect me of asking trick questions. Like, I know I think what he wants, but I'm not going to give it to him. I'm not going to give him the satisfaction. Um, No pun intended. Um, Right, so God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Um, John likes to talk in terms of the world. And what does John usually mean when when he brings up the world? Um, he, he's, he's talking about, and he's pointing out the fact that Jesus came not just to die for Jews, but to die for Gentiles as well. That the limit of his sacrifice is not for one people, but for all people. Um, not for everyone individually, but for the whole world collectively. That that is the point of how John uses that and how Jesus is using that. I mean, think of in John the Baptist's understanding. John the Baptist is kind of the last of the Old Testament prophets. Kind of the last Old Testament voice before the coming of Christ in the world. And think of the significance of him bringing up that atonement metaphor and applying it to the whole world. Right? It would be more understandable to John's crowd, to John the Baptist's crowd, to say, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the nation, or that takes away the sin of Israel. Right? That would be applying the metaphor to the normally understood range of people. But for John the Baptist to say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that is a, that is a theological statement in of itself. This is not just for the nation, this is for the world. And that is often how... John the Baptist uses that word collectively to speak of all people, um, all all groups of people. Um, Later, the Samaritans in John's gospel will confess Jesus to be the savior of the world. 
Um, well, that, that's interesting coming on the heels of the discussion with the woman at the well in John 4 and how, you know, do we worship correctly or do you worship correctly? We say we worship on the right hill. You say you worship on the right hill. Who's worshiping in the right place? And Jesus says, well, if you want a theological lesson, you've been wrong. Um, the Jews worship on the right hill according to the law of God. You've been quite wrong. But the day is coming when the Father is going to be looking for worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. Not just on one hill or another, but from all people in all the world. Um, and so this, it's natural for the Samaritans to say he's the savior of the world. He's someone who saves not just Israel, but even Samaritans can be included um, in, this, in this expanse. And so that, that's what's going for. So while it refers to the world collectively, it doesn't necessarily apply to people individually. And we know that by also reading in John's gospel. Because Jesus can come to the Pharisees and say, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So clearly Jesus is talking to a group of people whose sins have not been taken away. So it would be impossible to explain that if Jesus meant the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the whole world, then how could these people still be in their sin? See, it can't apply individually to everyone. It, it, it applies collectively. That's all people, all groups. That's how he likes to use that word. Um, I think that's the same thrust of what John says in 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, right? You guys are getting better. Um, the whole world, right? Um, and he means, again, right, propitiation, what does that word mean? Satisfaction of God's wrath, atoning sacrifice is another way it's translated. It means to, it can mean to pacify or to conciliate, right, that, that the wrath of God is, sometimes we use it like turn away. God is angry and he needs his wrath to be pacified, um, and Jesus is the one who pacifies the wrath of God, turning it away from us and receiving it on himself. Um, and it presumes to say that, that God is angry with sin and that wrath needs to be turned away. And so if it says he's the propitiation for the whole world, then people have said, well, that means he's turned away the wrath for the whole world, except that can't possibly be what's meant because the Bible specifically says there are people who are still under the wrath of God. Um, so it can't mean that he's universally propitiated for everyone um, because John says in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has life. Whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So Jesus can't be the propitiation universally if there are some people who the wrath of God can still be on. Again, what is, what is John saying about that? He's saying Jesus is the one who can pacify the wrath of God for everybody, all, all people, all groups of people. There's no one for whom Jesus cannot pacify the wrath of God against them. Again, he's talking collectively. He's not talking about applying it to every individual. Um, that's clearly not what the Word of God teaches. Um, another commentator put it this way, Christ dealt with the wrath of God against those he loved, so that they would no longer be objects of wrath, and love would achieve its aim of making children of wrath the children of God's good pleasure. Um, Ephesians 2.3 talks about how God loved people who were by nature children of wrath and brought them into his kingdom. 
Um, and so what that tells us is there, we can't apply that individually without doing violence to other scriptures. Well, John must mean that collectively, and this is the way he tends to use that word. Uh, the world, for John, tends to mean all people. Uh, that there are no people or groups of people who can say, this word is not for me. Um, he's the savior of the whole world. Um, Christ has not made a propitiation for everyone in the world, but he does say that everyone in the world can have their wrath propitiated by the Son of God. It's a subtle difference, but it's a big difference. Um, it's, a, it's a big difference in, in what the message is. Um, and so I think that that's one that people will often go to uh, to talk about the world in that sense. Um, people sometimes will go to 1 John 4.14. Um, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Okay, again, the world. And, and if, we, if we're familiar with the writing of John, we're, we're getting more comfortable with how John tends to use the world. Um, again, all people, all groups, not necessarily every individual. Um, John, John is clear about that. Um, earlier in this same chapter in 1 John 4, he talks about the world in a different sense. Uh, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come by the flesh, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Um, this is how John talks, you know, the, the cosmic sense of the world. Um, and that's why he says the, the spirit of Antichrist has gone into the world, but Jesus is the savior of the world. Um, he's dealing with both of those realities. And so, again, that can't mean everybody, because, again, John has been clear about that in other places. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. Whoever does this, not everyone. Um, otherwise, everyone would be saved, and that's, that's clearly not what the Bible teaches. That's why this, guy, this Reformed scholar I quoted earlier was saying, you can't explain these verses in a universal sense without doing damage to other clear texts of Scripture. You have to make them nonsensical by the way you interpret it if you try to apply these things to everyone individually. And so even though it's in John's writings that oftentimes he will bring up the world, um, and Jesus being the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the propitiation for the world, he's also very clear that not all people are saved. Uh, that not all people are redeemed from the wrath of God and that Jesus came for a specific purpose, which to, was to redeem his own, that the Father had given him. And so you'd have to take those other statements of John and read them against other clearer statements of John. Uh, for example, John 6, 37 and 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That there is a group that has been given him uh, from the Father that he has come to redeem. He says something similar in, the, in John 10 about the good, being a good shepherd. Um, John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then a few verses later, 
I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Right? I lay down my life for those who are mine. Um, that's, that's a particular atonement. Um, in John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays very clearly differentiating those who are his from the Father and those who are in the world. Um, so we see that in John 17, 6, 9, and 25. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Right? There are people out of the world that have been given him by the Father. Um, and so while there are, there's no one in the world who can say these promises are not for me, we recognize that when Jesus goes to the cross, he goes to the cross for those particular people out of the world who have been given him by the Father, who were chosen from the Father before all eternity and redeemed by the Son in time and history. Um, and so we're just talking about the difference between what God knows in the, in the atonement. And so those are, those are passages that all refer to the world. And I think once you understand how the world is being used, right, all peoples and groups, it becomes very clear what's actually being said. Um, it's only if you try to apply it universally that it becomes unclear, but to do that does violence to other texts that are very clear about that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, uh, that he came for his own, and those kinds of things. So any questions about any of, any of those passages in the world? Yeah, if someone, yeah, how do you deal with someone who's bringing these verses up? And yeah, usually most people bring them up, even if they don't like limited atonement, they're usually not arguing for universalism either. Um, and that's what makes it difficult, you know, and I think that is a fair thing to say, is how, how can you apply this text the way you're applying it and not make all people saved. Um, because I think even then, in some sense, they have to kind of concede that the atonement is limited. Um, I think what they want to do is say, I'm not saying everybody's saved, but I'm saying Christ died for everybody. And that's usually the difference, I think, that people will tend to make. Um, but, you know, then that gets more into issues of what, what did Jesus die on the cross to do? Um, and usually if that's what they're arguing, I'm not saying everyone's saved, but I am saying Jesus died for everyone because that's what the scriptures say. Um, I'll, I'll, then I'll usually get into well, why did Jesus die on the cross and try to appeal to the justice of God to say he can't, he can't punish Christ for the sins of people who then themselves go to, go to hell unbelieving because then that's been punished twice and that's an, that's an unjust. It's an unjust result for Jesus. Um, that he would suffer for people who are not going to be redeemed and that they would then go to their suffering. That makes God unjust. Um, because, so sometimes I think people don't really understand what is the efficacy of the death of Christ. And sometimes you need to, to get into what did Jesus do by dying on the cross. Yeah, there's a, there's a hymn that says, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he's, he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. Yeah, and I think that captures well and it wasn't I that found Savior. I was found. I was found by the, yeah. So, right, I think you're right. That's a basic principle of biblical interpretation that's so important that you just sketched out is to allow 
the, the clearer passages of Scripture to interpret, the less clear. Um, that's why, for example, you, you almost need to have your eschatology, your end times theology understood before you go to the thousand years in Revelation. Because if you start there, you're going to be very confused. You get some sweet charts and graphs, but you'll be very confused. Um, what you need to do is look at what all the scriptures say apart from that and then say, okay, now having heard what happens at the end, now I go there and try to figure out what this means against that backdrop. Um, and I think, yeah, I think, you know, it's always hard to impute motives to why people do what they do. Um, some people without a covenant hermeneutic don't understand, you know, how this all functions under the terms of the covenant. Sometimes people don't understand the nature of the efficacy of the death of Christ, that he didn't really die to save people, but he just died to make salvation possible. Um, and then we have to go to the things that the Bible says about what the death of Christ accomplishes, um, because if you don't do that, then you've skewed what the death of Christ was really about. Um, and so it can be a big, a big theological undertaking with people who want to say, but I think to read our friends who don't agree with us in the best light, I think the real problem is they feel like in some way we're limiting the effect of the death of Christ. That we're saying we're minimizing the death of Christ and they're trying to maximize the death of Christ. And so I, th I think that's often their problem is, and that's why I said sometimes it's better to not argue for limited atonement but to argue for a particular atonement or a definite redemption um, and just to say, did Jesus know the people for whom he was dying? Um, or was he dying a general death, and did Jesus actually save anyone in his death? Um, what, what I try to do sometimes is show people, if you make Jesus' death only to create the possibility of salvation, then Jesus didn't really die to save anyone. He didn't save anyone in his dying. Um, that's, that's one of the arguments the reform made against the Arminians. You're, you're actually saying Jesus didn't die for anyone. He died to make salvation possible, but he didn't actually save anyone by his death. Um, and not only would that be a monstrous injustice for him to die for no one, um, to save no one, it also doesn't make him really the savior. You kind of save yourself. And that's what the Belgic Confession says about the the, the atoning work of Christ. Either he's a full savior or he's half a savior. And if he's a half a savior, read your Bible and figure out how Jesus is ever called half a savior. Um, that it's actually a monstrous blasphemy to say Jesus is half a savior. Um, because really, if he half a savior is no savior at all. Um, and of course, we want to say Jesus saves by his death. And so I think sometimes there are other things that are in play beyond just principles of interpretation, is really not having your theology well grounded in what, what was the need that I had for Jesus to die. Um, you know, that, that's, and that, that can be a problem too. You know, R.C. Sproul wrote a book called, I think it was called Save From What? Because he'd had so many conversations with people. Christians who would say, I'm saved, and he would say, what are you saved from? And they would, you know, kind of hem and haw and not really, you know, they knew that you had to be saved, but they didn't know what it meant to be saved or, or what you were saved from. If you, if you understand I need to be saved from the wrath of God, um, then, you, then, you have to, then that branches into other important questions. Why is God's wrath on me? I didn't think I was that bad a person. Um... 
Well, you don't really, then we don't understand sin. We don't understand the covenant. We don't understand original sin. We don't understand our actual sin. We don't understand what sin deserves. You have to kind of come to that understanding to realize that the wrath of God dwells on me and there's nothing I can do for myself to get out from under this wrath. That if I'm going to be saved, someone else is going to have to save me. And they're going to have to save me by dying for what I did um, and provide me the righteousness without which I can't stand before God. Um, and then when you begin to see these things, you realize, okay, so I need a Savior who's like me, so he's truly man. He also needs to be truly righteous because sinners can't die for sinners. He also needs to be God because only God can bear up under the weight of God's wrath. You know, that, that becomes very clear then why you need Jesus to come and save you by his cross. So I think sometimes it's interpretation issues. I think sometimes it's basic theology issues. Um, and, and really a misunderstanding of basic theology is the only way, you know, that you could really be a four-point Calvinist and say, I believe in election, but not particular redemption. Because you're essentially saying, I believe that God chooses a people, but I don't believe that Jesus came to save that people, which becomes a strange way of thinking about things. Um, and that's why, you know, our Reformed, you know, scholars would say, you can't, you can't hold to unconditional election and, and not hold to limited atonement. You lose that if you, if you say that. And in fact, you lose all the points um, because they all hold together. God planned a redemption in election. He accomplished that redemption by the death of his son. And he applies that redemption in history to everyone who believes by the work of his spirit. Um, and to say that God could plan a redemption and then fail to bring it about, um, I think just to state that question um, shows that, that that can't possibly be. Because if, if God is all-powerful, and he is, what could stop him from accomplishing his plan? But our plans get ruined because we forgot something that was on the calendar or you know, the car breaks down or, you know, because there are circumstances beyond our control. There are no circumstances beyond God's control. So if he, if he made a plan and then can't work out the plan, how could that possibly happen? And so I think there are sometimes basic theological things in addition to principles of interpretation that we have to say, I don't really think you understand sin or I don't really think you understand the sacrifice of Christ and what that represents for us or the justice of God, um, how God can't have executed Christ on the cross for no sin, right? He, he was made sin who knew no sin. So whose sin was he made, right? For everybody or for those for whom he died? I mean that, you know, I think all of those things factor into how you explain to people. So I usually don't try to assume motives. I usually find it's better to ask questions, um, which can be a little meaner in the long run because you can actually just be kind of playing out the rope for people to kind of get themselves in trouble. Um, but I always, it's a little less aggressive than reformed people can be at times to just say, can you tell me what you think the death of Christ accomplished? Um, and doesn't, and because you know, certain views, then you would say, well, then he didn't save anybody. And the minute then you start talking about, well, who did he save by his death? Um, then you're going to start getting into these kinds of issues. And what we're saying, well, all we're saying is Jesus knows those for whom he died. I'm not saying I know those for whom he died. And that's why John would say he died for the whole world. 
Um, there's no one here who can say, I'm not included in a group of people that can be covered by the death of the Son of God. No, it goes out to the whole world, but tells the whole world that they need to believe. And then you realize that those who believe were those for whom Christ died because the Father had given them to him to keep and to, and to care for. Um, so, yeah, it kind of all goes back. And so I never, assume any, I never assume anymore. I used to make that mistake, and then I'd argue and argue and argue, and then someone would say, well, that, that's not really my problem. <laughs> my problem with it is this. And so you realize you need to listen to people and figure out, okay, what, what is your... What is your issue? Um, you know, what, what, where, where is this malfunctioning for you um, that, that you think? And usually it's because what they want to do is say, well, I don't want to limit the death of Christ. Um, and what I want to say is I'm not limiting it either. I'm just saying he knew those for whom he died. That's where it kind of comes to a basic level. Did Jesus know who he was dying for when he died? Um, and, and I think it's clear from what he said, he knew those who'd been given him by the Father. And he said, I'm going to keep them all. They know my voice. They follow me and I'll raise them up on the last day. I give them eternal life. Um, and no one will take them from me. So that seems to me all to suggest he knows the people he's talking about. Um, and that, that, that's not just like a theological nicety. It's also very important for God's people to have that comfort of knowing that Jesus didn't just come to the world, into the world to save sinners, which is true, but he came into the world to save you. Right? That, that you were on Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, that you were on his mind in his dying. Uh, that he was there to save you, not just to save the world, um, but to save you. Um, that, that God cares for you enough, that the Father loved you enough to choose you before the foundation of the world, to send his son to save you. You know, it becomes much more personal in that sense. And that's exactly what the word of God teaches us. Jesus came to die for those he loves. Um, he came because he loves you. And that, that's a very important thing to be able to carry forward in your life, to know that God loves me. Um, because we, you know, we sing the song when we're little kids, if we grow up in the church. You know, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Um, but sometimes it's easier to sing as a kid than it is to believe. Um, and it seems as something of adult arrogance that you think, well, that's a song for kids. I surely don't need to sing, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Um, no, we actually need to be reminded of that every day. The Lord loves us, um, sent his son to die for us. He came to save us. He knows those for whom he's praying in John 17. Um, I'm praying for my disciples who I'm about to leave in the world. I'm praying for those who will come to know me from what they preach. I'm praying for them too. He specifically says, I'm not praying for the world, I'm praying for them. Those who will call out of the world. Um, so I think, I think it always just it behooves us to listen to people and to say, what is the, tell me what, tell me what your problem with this is. You know, tell me why you don't think this does damage to the death of Christ. Just ask questions. Um, and oftentimes that's when people begin to understand, begin to realize they really don't know answers to the to basic questions. Um, you know, I had somebody once who came to church and said, well, you know, I'm not interested in, in any of the creeds or confessions because I just believe in the Bible. And I said, okay, I mean, that's, that's fine. Let's talk about the Bible. 
And um, as I went, you know, just through basics, like, what do you believe? Um, and I would say, well, do you know this story out of the Bible? No, I don't know that story. Um, well, do you remember when Jesus said that? No, I don't know that. And so, you know, this person, you know, they wanted to believe in the Bible, which was good, but it was clear they didn't know the Bible at all. And so I said, well, you know, can you help me? What do you think the Bible teaches about salvation? How are you saved? What do you need to be saved from? You know, basic questions. And this person who was, you know, so assertive, like, just need the Bible, I said, well, you know, what we're finding just in our conversation is the Bible is a big book, and it's hard to, to know everything that's in it. Um, and so it can be helpful at times to have a summary. Um, and that's all we're trying to do in, the, in these creeds and confessions, just summarize what we find there. Um, and if you can show me how this is a bad summary from the Word of God, I'd be happy to change it. I'm not putting any authority on the summary. But the advantage we have is this summary's been around for 500 years, and there have been a lot of people who have attacked it as a bad summary, and it's been proven true by the Word of God. Um, so it stood the test of time and was written by people that are a lot smarter than we are um, as summaries of Scripture. And it shows why these things hang together. So I, I think... In all of these things, you know, I'm trying to just respond in basic interpretation terms to these things. But we really do need to listen to people as to why, what problem they're having. Because if someone says, you know, I, I think you're diminishing the glory of what Jesus did on the cross, um, then we want to take that as a very serious Christian concern, right? Nobody wants to diminish the glory of what Jesus did by his cross. Um, and so we want to be clear, this is why our view doesn't diminish the glory of what Jesus did on the cross. Um, so, yeah, I think there's all kinds of reasons I've encountered from just never really thought about it, never heard about it, didn't even know there were Calvinists in the world. Um, you know, some people, you hear that they hear you're Calvinists, they go, what? I didn't think those things existed anymore. I was like, yeah, there's a few of us. Um, it's a dying breed, but, you know, we're still out there. Um, so, yeah, it just all depends. So I think, yeah, I think sometimes it's interpretation issues. Sometimes it's, you know, concerns about other things falling apart in Scripture. And I think that's why it's often good just to, like, change the, the words you use and say, I think God planned a plan of salvation. I think he accomplished it in his son. I think he's applying it by his spirit in the world. And I think that if God plans to do something, and accomplish something and is applying the thing he accomplished, he's not going to let it fail. Um, that he declares the end from the beginning. And so before the beginning, he declared to save a people. And that at the end we'll find that he'll have saved his people um, from the whole world, every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Um, so I think, I think actually it's not that difficult to argue for the world. Um, it's actually pretty clear. And, you know, one of the interesting things you find as well is Paul will use this a couple times, and he'll use it particularly in First Timothy, where sometimes, sometimes people will go to try to say, well, see, Paul clearly says he's the savior of the world. Um, but one of the interesting things is Paul is writing to Timothy, who's ministering in Ephesus, and all over Ephesus are um, inscriptions to dead men and to false gods that say they're the saviors of the world or they're the saviors of all men. Um, and Paul's clearly using, when he says that, as a polemic against someone who would say Caesar is the savior of all men, or Jupiter is the savior of all men. What Paul is saying is actually there's only one savior of all men, 
and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's actually an argument, you know, culturally targeted to Timothy's day in Ephesus where they would have been surrounded by inscriptions to dead men and gods saying he was the savior of all men. Uh, and Paul's saying, no, Timothy, you go tell them there's only one savior of all men, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so that's more of a defense of God against false teaching than it is you know, a theological statement, which is why you have to go through the scripture and work through it to say, now what's going on here? Um, so that's important. Any other questions? You're all convinced? Uh, we're Calvinists, yeah. If, if only everyone was, yeah, yeah. Um, and, that's, and that's what I think, you know, it becomes a little more difficult, when we, and we'll do this next time, but get into, like, all men. When, when it says he died for all, or he died for all men, uh, what, what do we do with, with some of those passages? That can become a little more difficult, but still, I think, in the end, it comes out pretty clearly. Well, it, it's a difficult topic that I can't answer fully in the five minutes we have left. Um, but what we, what we often say, we talk about the will of God and the will of people. That we have a will and God has a will. And that God's will is always done and we do what, according to our wills, which are dead in sin and trespass and we can only choose according to our nature. Um, and so you know, that's sometimes what, if someone really objects to you denying free will, then I'll sometimes take a, I'll back up and make them think they're winning but they're really not. And I'll say, well, no, you actually are free to choose but you have to choose consistent with your own nature. And so a fallen nature can only choose consistent with its own nature, which will always be to hate God and to hate your neighbor. Um, that that nature has to be enlivened before the will can actually choose something else. Um, and even then, if it was simply left free, it still would choose against God. Um, and so what God does is say, I get my will is done and your will is done as well. No violence is done to your will. I bring your nature alive and give you a new life and the spirit goes into you so that you actually choose. He sweetly bends you towards himself, but you still do the choosing. Um, and so that's how we avoid the puppet. Now, it's not a wholly satisfactory answer. We sometimes call that the doctrine of confluence. Um, or concurrence, and the only really way to think about it is to think about when two rivers flow together. Okay, so you, this is the classic example that people will tend to use. You have a river flowing this way, beautiful, I know, a river flowing this way, right? So we can think of this river as God's will, and this river as my will, and they're both flowing, and then they flow on together in salvation. And so when I'm saved, whose will is it? Well, this is, this, is the, this is the power of the Spirit, to bring God's will to be done and my will together so that as salvation goes forward, it's both his will and my will. And sometimes when we don't really see this doctrine clearly, that's where you can get what people call hyper-Calvinism, where you will say, well, if it's God's will to save me, then I can just sit here like a bump on a log and wait for him to do it. So we don't need to go be missionaries because if God's elected people, he'll find them. Um, so we don't need to go work and do it. Well, that's not what God's called us to do. He said, you go preach, you know. You go out there and call people and 
whoever I've called will come to me, and it's, it's my will and their will. Uh, and that's, this is the mystery of how God is able to work, so that his will is done and our will is done without violence being done to our will. So I don't get moved against my will. And so that's why we always say, who believed when God, when, when God called you and said, believe? That was your faith. You believed. It was given to you by God, but it wasn't as if you were sitting there going, I don't want to, I'm not going to believe, forget it. And God, you know, pulled you along to make you do something you didn't want to do. No, it's, we heard the word and we believed it. We believed it. Well, why did we believe it? Well, the Spirit gave us the gift of faith. We can't ascribe that to ourselves, but we still believed it. And if you get too much in, into the head of like who's doing what, you, you get paralyzed because you say, well, if only God can make someone believe, then I can't even go to someone and say you should believe in Jesus. We'll say, well, no, that, that's, that's the wrong way of thinking about it. The, the way to think about it is he's given his will to me. I go out and preach his word, and I preach in the confidence that to whoever he wants to save, his will and man's will will flow together such that, that salvation will happen. But as you're going down this river, it's hard sometimes to tell who's, which river is which because they flow together. It is a mystery, yeah. Yeah, it's, it can't be perfectly resolved. How God works in the, in the will, it, it is a mystery. You know, the, that's what the born-again discussion that Jesus has with Nicodemus says, right? You, you know when the wind blows, you can see it, but you don't really know where it comes from or, or what it is in itself. You only see it by its effect. And that's what we're saying about, about salvation. I'm not sure exactly how God works in that mysterious, we even call it ineffable way of regeneration that bends our wills sweetly to his. But we always talk about the fact that he doesn't force us against our will. He enlivens our will and then bends it towards himself so that we do choose and exercise our will for him. Uh, we'll get to that more as we go on because that comes up in the doctrines of total depravity and irresistible grace. Um, but that's our, that's our time for, for today. So let me close this in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus did come to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you that he is the manifestation of your love for the world, and we pray that all would put their faith and trust in him and be saved. So help us to confess what the scriptures confess in the, in the fullness of what they say and in the confidence that, that you have chosen a people for yourself for whom Christ redeemed and that you will gather all of them in your time. And so we praise you for it and for including us in that number. So we pray that you would forgive us our sins and help us to always believe in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Okay, thank you. You're dismissed.